This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ranchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and uh, this is the Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Just as a note, uh, we are not taking calls. Uh, This is a new program, but it is pre-recorded since I will be away for the weekend. And uh, with that, I wanted to touch on some topics that we've talked about a a little bit in the past, and a lot of it has to do with sports. Uh, Typically this weekend, um, there's a lot of activity going on in youth sports, adults getting out, barbecuing, and playing different sports. And it's important for us to kind of look at that. So what I have are two interviews One is Dr. Lori Devaney. Dr. Devaney is a doctor of physical therapy. She has a PhD. And it was a lecture she gave at the University of Connecticut where she teaches. And specifically talking about the position of the neck and flexibility of the neck in baseball pitchers and how that limited flexibility can result in arm injuries. And I found that fascinating. And we kind of veered off from that and really got to talk to her a little bit about overuse syndrome and working with athletes that are kind of pushing it too hard to get ahead. So uh, that will be one of the interviews. In the second half of our program, we're going to hear from Dr. Christopher Giza. Uh, Dr. Giza is a child neurologist. He's an MD who has done a fellowship in child neurology in addition to a Ph.D. Dr. Giza and I met at the American Academy of Neurology meeting this uh, past month. And interestingly, he wrote really one of the seminal papers on the physiology behind concussion, breaking it down to a, a cell level. And uh, interestingly, he's also been a leading researcher in the child concussion. And he had an interesting perspective uh, about concussion and head injury and sports in general, really, in looking at how to we could be using sports neurology to improve ourselves. So that'll be the second half of our program. As I mentioned, more people will be out there. And we're starting to see more bicycles on the road, which is a great thing. But one of the problems with bicycles are there's a limited distance you can go, right? If you're trying to bike to work or bike to a store, you have to deal with hills, and that's great when you're young. But as we get older, it's more difficult. And we did a show a couple of years ago about the beginnings of what were electric bikes, e-bikes. And this has really caught on. All the major manufacturers now are making electric bikes. And basically, an electric bike is a regular bike, looks like a regular bike. You pedal it. But if you get to a big hill or you become tired, you flip a switch and an electric motor comes on and you don't have to pedal. 
and you can regulate the speed. There are a lot of different things to doing that. And previously, they had like big batteries. They're kind of bulky bikes, but uh, now I've seen several of them where the, the battery and the motor are so streamlined, you, you hardly notice that there's this electrical component. And, and the thinking is that more people will go more distance with the bike, get out, and maybe use it more functionally to do things instead of driving a car. Now, that has a lot of implication for us, especially here in Connecticut, right? Less wear and tear on the roads, fewer taxes that you're paying for gas, maybe tolls. Uh, but uh, more importantly, uh, we're really helping the environment and helping relieve the traffic problem. Uh, the traffic problem has gotten ridiculous. Uh, I mean, when you get on the road, so many people are just one person in a car. We don't carpool. We don't have a lot of mass transit. And it's something we're going to have to need to develop. So the electric bike, uh, I think, is uh, something really coming around that we're seeing more and more of. Um, and I may be able to get somebody on who from one of our local bike shops to really talk to us a little bit more about um, how this is evolving and the cost of it, uh, all of those other factors. I think one of the problems is states are already trying to figure out how to tax them. See, you don't tax a bicycle, but you tax a motorcycle. So is it a motorcycle or is it a bicycle? Well, by all means, it is a bicycle. Um, but the question is, can they tax it? And I think that uh, that may be an advantage to getting involved in um, this movement of electric bikes and, and doing more cycling. The next thing I wanted to talk about was a recent article about does soccer headgear reduce the incidence of sport-related concussion? This is an interesting study that was published in the British uh, Journal of Medicine, uh, and it's something that comes up all the time, right, because there are these different types of headgear for soccer players. They're almost like headbands, and they're marketed as being able to avoid concussion. And that's not been the case, and, and we've not found that to be helpful. But this study looked at uh, – 2,700, a little over 2,700 participants, 67% of which were female, and looked at the incidence of concussion in the groups wearing the headband as, as opposed to those not wearing it. And the finding was uh, fairly clear that it does not add um, any significant safety. So soccer headgear did not reduce the incidence or the severity of sports-related concussion in high school soccer players. And that most likely will pertain to even younger youth soccer players. So a lot of parents are so well-intentioned. They want to get out there. If they could buy something that will keep their child active and protect their brain, they're willing to do it. And I think that uh, we also have to look at the science behind it. And that's what we do on this program is look at the science behind some of these things. And in this case, um, probably isn't worth the investment right now. But again, um, we will continue to look at that and follow that story. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my first guest, Dr. Lori Devaney. Um, Dr. Devaney is a Ph.D. at the University of Connecticut, specializing in physical therapy, and I think she's got some interesting information for all of us. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. 
This is Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I'm at the University of Connecticut with Dr. Lori Devaney. Dr. Devaney is a PhD in physical therapy and has done some exciting work on pitchers and throwing athletes who have arm problems and have developed injuries to the arm and their relation to the cervical spine. Lori, thank you. Thanks for having me today. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about it, because when we think of arm injuries, we're thinking of Tommy John surgery. We keep hearing about that in young children. We don't think about the cervical spine. So how does the neck and cervical spine relate to arm injuries? So, you know, if you think about the pitching motion, you've got to think about it as um, a body moving rapidly in space around a head that's fixed on a target. Anyone who plays a ball sport has to acquire the target and kind of keep a focus on the target. So if your neck is stiff, then that's going to affect how you're actually moving around the ball. And so what we think is happening is that stiffness in one area of the neck actually results in some compensations um, into other positions. And so that's what actually may um, kind of put that picture in jeopardy from the, the standpoint of shoulder and elbow pain. We see this all the time at the major leagues and at advanced levels, but a lot of our concern is about youth sports. Obviously things have changed. Um, young people are specializing more early on. They're throwing a lot more. You talked a little bit about it in your lecture about AAU and travel teams and things like that. One of the things people need to be mindful of? Are there exercises that should be done? Um, what are your cautions to young athletes and parents with respect to arm injuries and neck injuries? Well, you know, as researchers, we spend a lot of time looking for these things that um, increase risk of injury. And sometimes at the end of the day, I wonder if it really just boils down to, you know, at the younger age levels, they're just throwing too much. Um, you know, if, if you look at um, the research that suggests if you throw more than eight months a year, you're at increased risk if you're at the youth level. If you throw more than a certain number of innings or a certain number of pitches, um, you're at an increased risk. So when you have some of these travel seasons that span 72 games for, you know, for kids who are 12 years old, they're also maybe playing for a little league team, maybe they're playing for a school team as well, um, that really accumulates a lot of stress. On the, um, on the throwing arm in particular. And some of those changes that happen, um, you know, really can't be reversed. So unfortunately what we're seeing is this trend where Tommy John surgery used to be um, a procedure that was only done in veteran pitchers. And now we've seen that age drop over time. And over the past three decades, we've seen significant increases. And now, you know, we're seeing the 15 to 19 year old age group. Um, it's expected to double by 2025, the number of, of those youth pitchers who are having um, Tommy John surgery. So now the struggle is, you know, by the time they, they do things like get to college or if they're lucky enough to get into the professional ranks, they're having a second Tommy John surgery. So I think it's really important that we look at, at exposure. Um, how much are we having these kids play? Um, and actually looking at them um, from a whole athlete perspective um, as far as, you know, what's going to improve their performance over time. And I think having a healthy arm is one of the best things that we can do for them. With respect to pitching, since we're talking about it at the youth level, is it the type of pitch they're throwing? So we keep hearing about these velocities that get faster and faster, and we're judging pitchers now based on, well, he threw 98, he threw 94, uh, and, and recruiting pitchers who are throwing harder and harder. Is that what's rendering them more vulnerable to injury as opposed to throwing a curve, slider, uh, and breaking pitches? I do think pitch velocity is a really important factor. You know, the, the 
Research on the throwing the curveball at a young age is pretty variable. Now, PitchSmart USA and some of the guidelines do still recommend that pitchers don't start throwing curveballs until they until they are approaching skeletal maturity, skeletal maturity. Um, but at this point. Um, we're really looking at speed, so we know that high school pitchers who throw above 80 miles per hour seem to be more at risk of injury, and, and that's probably just straight physics. Um, you know, if you look at your ulnar collateral ligament, it has a failure rate, and just about every time you throw a ball, um, those forces are reaching that failure rate, and the only thing really saving you is the muscles around it that help to control that motion. But once those muscles start to fatigue and you start to hit around 60 pitches, um, then you start to see actually changes going on in that joint, um, it's some stretching out of that ligament, and so um, you, know, you really have to look at velocity as being, um, as being a factor there. And also there's some research in the major leagues that, um, that throwing a fastball um, at about half the time increases the risk as opposed to the guys who are throwing more off-speed pitches. One of the things uh, when you're around pitchers, all of them should have an arm program, right? They, everybody has an arm program for arm strengthening. What I took from your lecture today was that it sounds like they should also have a neck program. Is that what you're advocating? In other words, this preventive neck exercises the same way they do an arm exercise? I would say at the college level and above, I would definitely advocate for that at this point. What we don't know is whether these changes that we see in pitchers, we don't know when the adaptations start. So we think that maybe some of these mobility changes are adaptations to throwing over time, just like we see in the shoulder. So then one of the next steps will be taking it down to the high school level and see if we see the same relationship there. Um, but certainly as they, as they get into high school, later high school years, and into college playing, um, it seems that it would be wise, especially at the, um, at the more competitive levels, for them to um, have a program that looks at uh, maintaining neck mobility. And it's pretty easy to do. So parents who are listening and have what they hope is they have a child who likes to pitch is, is a good pitcher. Uh, how, how often of the year, how many months of the year should they actually be pitching? Um, it, it, it's, I know that's always the question, as opposed to mixing it up with another sport such as soccer or an, another non-throwing sport. Yeah. Well, again, the research was, would suggest don't throw more than eight months in a year and to mix it up with other things. Um, my personal opinion is I would love to see kids below the high school level actually playing even less than that um, to preserve their I lives. think eight months is a lot, actually. I, I, I agree. So, I, so I, I don't have anything to base this on from a research standpoint, only my, my clinical observations. Um, but I would say that at the younger ages, again, until they reach skeletal maturity, um, I would like to see them playing six months or less. Lori, thank you for spending time with me today. Uh, look forward to more of your research. Great. Thanks. I enjoyed thanks. it. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I am here at the American Academy of Neurology meeting in Philadelphia, and we're going to be chatting with Dr. Chris Giza. Dr. Giza is a professor of neurology at UCLA, and his area of expertise has been sports neurology. In fact, Dr. Giza published one of the seminal papers in sports neurology looking at the physiology of the brain uh, after a concussion. Chris, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Uh, Chris, let's talk a little bit about what you do at UCLA. You have a, a very dynamic program, the Brain Sport Program. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the program and what's going on there? Sure. Um, you know, Brain Sport 
actually stands for something. So this, the SPORT is an acronym for Safety, Performance, Outreach, Research, and Treatment. And so we do a little bit of everything. We focus on sport safety. We try to find ways to improve performance. We do outreach in the community. Uh, we do research, both basic and clinical research, uh, which is a big part of our program. And then we have several multidisciplinary clinics focused mostly on youth athletes and young adults, but we also do see some uh, adult, adult individuals and retired athletes. Now, by training, you're a pediatric neurologist. And let's face it, when we talk about sports and injuries, especially neurologic injuries, it really boils down to children. What's safe for children to do? What's not safe for children to do? And it's become a real problem for parents trying to make these decisions. Do they play football, not play football, uh, and a variety of other sports? Can you talk a little bit about that, what you recommend to parents as a child neurologist? Sure. I think one thing is important is that we see the media focused a lot on um, a small number of very elite professional athletes, but if you actually look at the numbers of people who participate in sports and perhaps expand it to recreational activities too, like bicycle riding and playground and other things, um, children are really um, the, the vast majority of individuals who are exposed to these potential risks. Um, I think what I try to tell parents in a nutshell is the decision to have your child participate in any particular physical activity is a risk-benefit ratio. What's the benefit they get from the activity versus what the potential risk is? And that's different. That's a different calculation for each family. So um, part of our sort of um, provision of information to families when we do outreach or when we talk to families in clinic is giving them accurate information so that they can decide what's the best decision in their family. Have you seen a trend away from high-velocity collision sports in children in California where you are in Los Angeles? I think it's fair to say that uh, a high percentage, if not all, of the parents that we see um, in, in clinic after an injury or when we're doing community outreach, uh, parents are concerned about the potential long-term effects of uh, contact and collision sports, and that, that awareness and that concern has increased over the years. A lot has been talked about in children who have neurologic conditions already participating in sport, like ADHD, um, children who are on the autism spectrum. Can you share some of your thoughts in addressing that with uh, parents? Uh, I know I once wrote a column about um, choosing the right sport for a child on the spectrum, and I don't think any column I've ever written has gotten uh, more of a response from people around the world. So uh, I guess I'd like to hear what you think as a child neurologist. So, I mean, I may just digress with a little story sure. here. I mean, because this is actually predates my, I mean, even I think the birth of kind of sports neurology as a section within the AAN. But as a child neurologist, um, I once had a young man with a neurological condition called tuberous sclerosis which is associated with uh, developmental delays. Um, he had epilepsy, although it was well controlled, and seizures were only occurring at night. He was also a big guy, very strong and physical, not the smartest kid, and he wanted to play football. Now, for a child neurologist, that's a, that's a balancing act that probably a lot of my colleagues, I think, would have shied away from. Oh, uh, certainly. So, but in this case, you know, we figured everything out. We um, made sure his medications were stable. He'd never had a daytime seizure. 
We talked with his coach and his school and his parents. Everyone understood if a seizure were to occur during playing sport, they knew what to do. Um, long story long, he actually played his senior year in high school. You know, he wasn't a superstar player, but he was, he was so excited and happy to do that. He was revered in his school. And after he graduated, he ended up getting a part-time job as an assistant coach in a local school. So in the end, it was kind of a win-win, but it required thinking a little bit out of the box, maybe from the traditional neurologist perspective. Absolutely. And, and it had the support of his parents as well. Everyone was on board. That was, that was one thing for sure, is we, we couldn't go forward if, not, if everyone didn't understand uh, what were the goals and also, you know, what were the places where we we're going to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to stop, you know. So with a more common condition, uh, like peop- young people who are on the spectrum, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> do you recommend that they participate in any sport they wish or do you uh, try to recommend the parents steer them into a particular sport? So, again, it, it depends a lot. You know, they're all ranges of developmental disabilities, and so some kids may be more appropriate for certain sports than others. Um, I think the first thing we try to do is try to understand what are the individual needs that that child has in terms of physical activity and fitness and group participation and socialization, um, and then what is that individual's abilities, and try to match that to get optimal benefit with the least amount of risk. Um, so kids who may be aggressive and have impulse control things, you, you have to be careful about um, putting them into a sport where there's a lot of aggression unless there's really good supervision, and then maybe it provides an outlet. For kids who have problems with coordination, obviously you need to find a sport where they'll be able to participate more safely. And a lot of this also requires educating you know, the athletic trainers and, and the coaches, which at the youth level may be parents, um, to try to understand what it's like maybe to have a child with some special needs on their team. Recently, we actually partnered with our autism group at UCLA and hosted a conference um, in conjunction with Deakin University in Australia uh, for a program called All Play. And this was originated in Australia and now is um, across the country with the support of Australian Rules Football with the idea of educating uh, coaches and youth teams to allow inclusion of children with developmental disabilities in a way that is safe um, in sports all the way from, you know, non-contact sports like track and field all the way up to, you know, the biggest contact sport in Australia, footy, footsie, footy, sorry. Is that Australian rules football? Australian rules football. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I guess that is the epitome of a full contact sport. It absolutely is. And um, this program has really grown and we're looking to uh, see what, elements of that can be, um, can be brought to the states uh, to allow kids who've often been excluded from the physical education opportunities and, in particular, the socialization opportunities that occur with participating in a team sport. With that, it leads me to the next question, but we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Chris Giza, who is a professor of neurology. He's a child neurologist at UCLA and part of the Brain Sport Program. We're at the American Academy of Neurology in Philadelphia. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Giza to find out some of the newer innovations in the sports neurology field and why it's important to stay active to keep your brain working. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're at the American Academy of Neurology annual meeting. This is a meeting of uh, neurologists. We have 15,000 neurologists here in Philadelphia, 
And uh, of all those neurologists, I particularly chose uh, Dr. Chris Giza to chat with today because of all his work at UCLA in the brain and sport and exercise. We talked a little bit previously about working with children and uh, children with developmental disabilities. But Chris, you know, we focus a lot of our work, and you made this point yesterday at a meeting, um, we focus so much of our work on people who have had a concussion, people who have had an injury for sport. And maybe we don't spend enough time talking about how sports have helped us preserve our intellect, helped us really move ahead in life and help the brain and our body. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can talk a lot about that. Great. <laughs> so, I mean, I think this, this <clears throat> aspect, which is, which is, I think, even bigger than injury, but has been lost in sort of the public discussion here. And, and I think, you know, we know that physical activity is not just beneficial, it's essential for normal brain development. Um, if, you know, children are not given opportunities to exercise and play and interact, um, their brains grow up differently. We know from the basic science laboratory, if we have rats in running wheels, they make more growth factors in their brain, they make more synapses and connections in their brain, and they grow up to be smarter adults. And we know the similar enriching process occurs in, in humans when they have opportunities for exercise. We know that <clears throat> if you cut recess for children to give them more time to study, they actually do worse. And if you give them recess, they are better able to attend to the classes in between. Um, we know that long-term, you know, once you go out into adulthood and, and older age, um, physical activity is one of the strongest modifiable factors to offset the, the beginning of dementia and cognitive decline with age. Um, and there are multiple studies with you know, thousands of individuals showing that better cardiovascular and cerebrovascular um, qualities, you know, good blood pressure control, not smoking, doing regular exercise, all of these things, if you rate these things and follow these individuals, their age-related cognitive decline is about half as fast as people who have less healthy uh, uh, brain, uh, brain habits for their life. Um, there are also substantial studies um, showing that participation in sports, and again, team sports or sports that involve socialization, actually um, are associated with better self-reported mental health issues. Okay? And so um, there's a large study with over a million respondents that looked at this and showed uh, team sports were number one, uh, number two is my favorite sport, which is cycling, which is less of a team sport, although it depends how you do it. Um, but both those sports, both of those things have risks. Team sports have risks for colliding with other players. Obviously, things like cycling have their own inherent risks. Um, but we balance these things, each of us individually in our lives, uh, for what we think is helping us versus you know, some of these potential risks, and, and, we try to, and we try to get the most out of it. And I think that's important that there's strong science behind it at every level, from the laboratory all the way to large population-based studies. Yeah, and it's something we try to emphasize on this program is what does the science tell us, not what does the Internet tell us or what does Facebook tell us, um, that there's science to back this up. 
So, Chris, what do you tell people? So, you're, when you're seeing patients, and uh, you know it's not for me, or I mean, there's always an excuse. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a stroke, right. for example. What am I going to do? Right. Um, how do you go about approaching that? Uh, I guess it's a lot easier if it's somebody who wants to get back to doing something, um, and uh, you know, but may not because of a particular disability. How do you work around that? Well, I think you know. The good news is that actually most people do want to have some level of physical activity. They don't have to be doing Olympic sprints, okay? But often when we tell people, let's say people after a concussion who've been told to have rest, and we tell them, no, no, you can actually go out and just go out and walk the dog or ride a stationary bike. You should see how their faces light up when they realize they can do something and it's not going to be harmful. Absolutely. And it's the same thing we see in our older patients who come to us and they said maybe, oh, in years past, I was a, you know, a, a Marine or, and I had combat exposure or I worked a job where I was exposed to you know, head impacts or I was an athlete and now I'm 50 or 60 years old and I'm worried about my health. Um, if you tell them, hey, one of the things you can do to help your health is to get out there and be more physically active and you give them a plan to do that, often they're right on board. I think the other thing that you have to look for is sometimes there are reasons when people um, aren't readily willing to engage in a physical activity and it can be, uh, like you said, some type of neurological disability if they've had a stroke or other problem. Uh, it can be pain. A lot of times we see you know, um, orthopedic issues or, or arthritis type things as people get older. Um, it can be being overweight and out of, out of shape. Uh, and it can be mental, uh, mental health issues, depression or anxiety. People are worried. Um, so I think the other part of what you know, sports neurologists are really set up ideally to do is to assess these other medical and mental health issues and address them at the same time trying to promote brain health and more physical activity for our patients. Chris, I can't thank you enough, uh, not only for just spending time with us today, but for all the work you're doing, the great work you guys are doing at UCLA in the Brain Sport Program. Um, You know, you've been at the forefront of this field um, for a a very long time. Uh, Let me ask you this question, I guess. What do you think the next big thing is we're going to see in the field of sports neurology? Well, I think... I think for sure we're going to see more focus on the benefits of exercise and sort of the timing and the dosing of exercise. Just last month um, was the first randomized control trial of uh, sub-threshold, sub-symptom threshold exercise for kids recovering from concussion, showing uh, compared to a control group that just did stretching, those that did active exercise starting within four days of a concussion actually got better faster. And I think we're going to be better able to understand that. Um, I think another area where we're going to make progress is in uh, biological markers of injury. Some of this will happen to help us diagnose, but I think actually even more important is we know a subset of individuals are at risk for persistent symptoms. Um, And we don't know exactly what the underlying biology is, what makes those individuals different. Um, But I think we'll be able to find markers, either markers in the blood or with imaging or with electrical activity in the brain that will help us predict people who are more likely to have chronic problems after an injury and then use that information to figure out treatments that will make them get better faster. This is so exciting. Again, Chris, thank you for your time today and thanks for everything you do. Very happy to be talking with you.
I want to thank uh, my guests today, Dr. Lori Devaney and Dr. Chris Giza, for their time and sharing their knowledge on important topics in the area of sports medicine. Next week, we'll be back with a live program. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Olko. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Please remember to listen to the Healthy Rounds podcast. That can be downloaded for free from iTunes. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. You can do that today by going to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.